Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. So friends, if you will join with me in your pew Bible or the Bible you brought with you from home or on your Bible app, we're going to read today's text from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Hear with me now the words of the Lord. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Most holy God, as we gather during this hour to spend time with you, May we steal our hearts. May we steal our hearts from the distractions of the world and just listen to you. And in hearing your words, may our lives be changed so that we would leave this time not as just mere hearers of your words, but as doers of your words. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So I know of no better place on earth, no better place on earth to really understand the individuality and the plurality of our culture than to go to the airport and just engage in a good game of people watching. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like if you go to the airport... You remember back in the day, there used to be that when you went to travel by air, it was an experience. And so you dressed up for it, right? Nowadays, you still might see sort of the the jet setting uh, fashionista that's got the matching luggage and the shoes and the purse and everything's all put together. You might see that occasionally. They never sit where I sit on the airplane, by the way. Occasionally you see the businessman or the businesswoman that's traveling to close the big deal and they're wearing the appropriate business suit. They look like they mean serious business. They're always on their phone, always checking things, but they're ready to go. Then sometimes you see business casual, you know, trying to look relaxed, but look semi-professional, whatever that means. Then there's the, what I call the weekend warrior. That's the one that's wearing the cargo shorts or the blue jeans, some boots, a t-shirt, You can tell that they are relaxed to fly, but they're trying at least to not, you know, make their grandmother roll over in the grave or something like that. 
Then there is the cat that dresses for a day at the beach. Now you know what I'm talking about. Everything but the swimsuit. I mean, we're almost there. Then there are those that have rolled out of bed wearing their PJs. And I want to yell at them and go, folks, it's air travel. You're not going to Walmart. But yet they seem to think that that's okay. And I've been thinking about this and thinking about this whole idea of how we dress for life around us. Some places there are dress codes. For example, my friend Kevin, when he was in college, he said to me one day, he said, you know, Glenn, I really love Thursdays. And I said, why? He goes, because I don't have to think about what to wear today. Now, sidebar, Kevin was in ROTC. Thursday was uniform day. So it was already prescripted for him what to wear. And there were some businesses that back in the 80s, they had a dress code where for the executives, it was blue suits, white shirts, solid ties. And for the women, it was whatever fell in line with that as well. And then there are rules on what to wear to weddings. It depends on the time of the day, the latitude, the season, and the theme of the wedding. There's a rule on when to wear seersucker and when not to. And then there's what a friend of mine discovered when she went to the Holy Land, that in some of those sites of antiquities, there's a dress code for what women should and shouldn't wear. And she wore shorts because she was on vacation, and she got to visit this place wearing a loner skirt. Now, the loner skirt looks like all the other loner skirts. It's really bright. It's really ill-fitting. It really stands out. She referred to it as the skirt of shame. And then there's church. And it got me thinking about this idea of dress codes. It makes me wonder, is there a dress code in the kingdom of heaven? I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. Is there a dress code in the kingdom of heaven? And before we answer that question definitively, let's just kind of park it over to the side, that question, and let's look at today's text. Now, as we continue to explore Paul's letter to the Galatians, what we realize is that Paul continues teaching us about grace. Now, we know that grace transforms, it changes everything. We know that grace sort of flips our world upside down, and we recognize God's grace in each other. We begin to embrace one another, and we get to see maybe an expression of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. But today we consider how God's grace clothes us. How we are justified by faith in Christ, not by adherence to the law. How we, at baptism, we receive water and the Holy Spirit, and because that we are cleansed, we are clothed in Christ, and now we are one in Christ. So Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church of Galatia, remember, there's a little bit of confusion that's brewing in the early church. Because there's this question of identity. What does it mean to be the people of God? Who are the people of God? How do you define them? Now, there's some that are of the Jewish tradition, and they're holding on to what they've always had for this identity. They're holding on to the law, and you define yourself as a people of God because you have the law and the strict adherence to it. But what about the Gentiles? What are the ones that are not Jewish, but are hearing the gospel message. So remember, in the background, what we have is we have the Jews have seen themselves always as the chosen people of God. They know what it means. It's part of their identity. And they've had the law of Moses and the Torah. They've had it for centuries. 
And so as they left Egypt, as they struggled on the journey to the promised land in the wilderness, they had the law. When they landed in the promised land, they built the temple and they had the law. When the temple was destroyed and they were in exile, the law still endured. It still bound them together. That was their cultural, religious, and national identity was tied up in the law. But remember what Christ said. Christ said, I didn't come to abandon the law. I didn't come to do that, but I came to fulfill the law. And then he tells us to go and to preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them and making them disciples. And this is where sort of the confusion enters in. Because you've got Paul in his missionary journey, his calling, as we've heard, to preach to the Gentiles. And so he's converting them to Christianity, and now they're non-Jews. So they're not married to the law. They're not bound by the law. They're trying to wrestle with, well, how do we fit in with our friends, our brothers and sisters that are Jewish that are holding on to the law? Remember, what Paul wants is he wants unity in the church. Boy, wouldn't that be great? He wants unity in the church. He wants it across the body. So he goes to Jerusalem. He meets with the other elders of the early church, the other apostles, to sort of work this out because he wants to make sure that his ministry to the Gentiles is not splitting the church, but actually growing the church. So in this passage that we read today, right here in Galatians 3, what we begin to understand is it sort of clarifies and he redefines what it means to be the people of God. It's a new definition. Of course, we own it, but at that time it was radical, but it opened the door to so many people. But here's what he said. He said, the definition of the people of God is that we are all adopted into God's family as God's children by faith. That we are clothed in Christ and that we are one people, one community, despite all the differences that we may, that might be contained within the walls of it, because we are all bound by God's grace. So this idea of we are all adopted into God's family. We think about this, this is what happens at baptism when you really think about it. Families grow. You think about your own family, whether it's your nuclear family or sort of your greater family tree. Think about the changes that have happened in it over the years, over the centuries. It grows with marriages and births and adoption. It changes constantly. And see, these events, these red letter dates are important because it's when we add a new player, a new family member or players to the family equation, to the family dynamic. In verses 25 and 26, Paul writes, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, meaning the law. For in Christ, you are all children through faith, meaning through God's grace. So what Paul is really saying is that the Jews used to identify themselves, their identity was tied up in the law. That's how they knew that they were children of God. But now they're children of God because of the grace of God. And the, Jew, and the Gentiles, they really had no identity, if you will, in terms of the church. But now because of God's grace, they are also defined as children of God because Christ has done that for us at his death and resurrection, that we are all bound up in the graceful arms of God. So what he says, he writes these words, he doesn't say we, he says 
to you. And that's very important because he wants the, the church at Galatia, but everyone that reads this letter to know that this is about you, about me. This is an individual thing. To you, Christ has reconciled all of us to God. In other words, this is a red letter event, that this is a defining statement, that the definition of family is the same, but we have grown because of this event. Our family has expanded and beautifully. Just as we had last night, there was a wedding here in the sanctuary. And so what we think about in our wedding liturgies, we think about this idea of you plus me equals we, equals we, meaning launching a new couple as a new family. But they never leave the families that they came from. The family that they start out, their family of origin added a new daughter, a new sister, a new son, a new brother. Or as my friend uh, Joe says, she refers to her sons-in-law as her sons in love. Because it's at that moment that their families expand and they're added on to. So just as a few minutes ago as we baptized Campbell, we welcomed a new sister to our family. By faith, what we realize is that Christ died for all of us and that we became one family in that moment, that we are all brothers and sisters. And at her baptism, she is adopted into this family alongside of us. But as we think about this, we think about the idea of being clothed in Christ. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to celebrate a baptism for a family. And I was at that church long enough to celebrate it for both of their children. And the baptismal gown that they used had been in the family for over a century. It dated back to the Civil War. I mean, this thing was paper thin, brittle, but it was the family heirloom. Well cared for. And so think about aunts and uncles and grandparents and great grandparents and cousins. As, as you had children, the gown was passed to you and you were a steward of that gown until someone in the family needed it. So there's this story with this gown as, as we were baptizing those children that they were being tied into the family story going back a century, generations, baptized using that gown. But it got me thinking about this, this idea of being clothed in Christ. You know, the history of the baptism gown is simply this, that it started in the early church when new converts to the faith, they were baptized on Easter Sunday and they wore a gown of white to symbolize that they were putting on Christ's characteristics. And that continues today. We see that in the baptismal gowns, just like what Campbell wore, this gown of white, that she was being clothed in Christ. And we get caught up in the, the, the sentimentalism or the beauty of it, but let's not forget the theological underpinning, this gown that we are putting on the characteristics of Christ. That in the mystery of baptism, where we get the gift of water and the Spirit, that not only are we adopt in the family, but that we have new birth in Christ. That we're truly taking on, we're wrapping ourselves up in the grace of God. So this idea of being clothed in Christ, it means that by Christ's life and example, it shows us what to wear in the kingdom of heaven. That what our outfit might be. As we begin to think about this, we begin to think about who we are as brothers and sisters, as one people. You know, one of the things that we love in our culture about sports is it sort of encapsulates this idea of the human struggle. 
We see people with athletic skills and abilities that they hone them for maximum effect. If you want to be a good tennis player to keep practicing, a good golfer to keep practicing, a good runner to keep running, it doesn't matter the sport. But when teams come together, what we begin to realize in a team sport culture is that we bring together all these individuals, all their skills, all their talents, and we figure out the way they link and fit together for the sake of the team so that we might can win and we might grow even in through adversity as a team. Even when we lose, we find out something about ourselves. So this idea of team sports, what makes them great is it inspires the world around us. So we end up with something like this, the sports movies where we see the best in this human struggle, the best in this team coming together and see them triumph. And there's something that it teaches us about maybe how we could live together in community. In the year 2000, there was the movie Remember the Titans. It sort of tracked sort of the integration of T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And if you remember the story, you have Coach Boone and Coach Jones from two different schools, one that was African-American, one that was white, and they've got to figure out how to coach together, how to check their egos at the door, how to lead the team, how to set the example for their players and for the community. To teach them how to set aside their fears and their hurts for the community needed the example. These coaches challenged the boys not to see each other as black and white, but to see each other as titans, as teammates, how to check their egos about who was going to be the quarterback, who was going to be uh, the starting running back, who was going to get more playtime, to check that for the sake of who had the skills to help the team win best. And the point of the movie Couch and this idea of real life is to see each other not for our differences but for our commonalities, for the things that we have at the very base level and then to work from there celebrating the differences but achieving for the whole. And friends, that's what Paul is calling us to do here. In this part of the letter, what Paul is calling us to do is to do just that. That's why he writes that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male or female, for you are one in Christ. Now, I wonder as I watch the TV news and we read the newspaper, I wonder if Paul were to write a a letter to the church in America, I wonder what it might sound like. It might begin something like this. Grace and peace to you from your brother Paul to the church in America. And the next sentence might be, y'all, seriously. But I think picking this theme up, here's what he might say. My brothers and sisters, there's no longer black, white, and brown. There's no longer Republican, Democrat, and independent. There's no longer conservative, progressive, and centrist. No, you are all one in Christ the Lord. And if you belong to Christ, then you belong to that you inherit the gift, the promise of Abraham. See, friends, I think that's the message for us today. That we are one in Christ. So let's go back to the question I kind of parked over here about 20 minutes ago. So what is the dress code 
for the kingdom of heaven. We think about what we think about what we, the dress code for churches. Everybody says, you should wear your Sunday best. And depending on where you are in the world, your Sunday best might be suits and ties and dresses and hats, or it might be starched white shirts and fresh overalls or a clean pair of jeans and a nice untucked shirt. But see, I think that's the wrong answer. I think the dress code for the kingdom of heaven is Sunday best, but Sunday best is this. It doesn't matter what you wear to church. All you need to know is that naked is not good. Sunday best is that we are adopted into the family of God. Sunday best is that we are one people despite all of our differences. And Sunday best is that we are clothed in the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, I think is the is the dress code for the kingdom of heaven. So what does that look like maybe for us? I look at St. Patrick of Ireland. He wrote these words. He said, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie down, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of Christ. May your salvation, O Lord, ever be with us. Friends, to be clothed in Christ's glory is to be this. That's our Sunday best. That's the dress code for the kingdom. And so as we go out into the world, may we bear and wear our Sunday best. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.